Okay. So, you are the Romans class. But, you're getting a new name temporarily. You're the hermeneutics class for a while. Okay? Hermeneutics is a crazy word, but uh, it's a very important word. And you're going to be going through a study over the next few weeks on hermeneutics, which is the art and science of biblical interpretation. How do we interpret the Bible? Okay, that's the question that we're going to seek to answer over the next few weeks. And today, um, I'm going to be showing you a lesson actually from the other Sunday school class. This is from our systematic theology class, and we're going to be going through this lesson. But uh, after this week, we're going to be going through a video series in here called Herman Who. When I first said that word hermeneutics, maybe that's the first thing that came to your, your mind was Herman Who? <laughs> hermeneutics, hermeneutics. And it's a series that's well done, it's funny, it's lighthearted, but it also teaches you a lot of things. And uh, it's just a great time to be going through this subject because you just finished Romans chapter what? Eight, very good. And uh, Romans has how many chapters? Bible trivia time, how many chapters? 16. And so, it is 16. And so you just finished eight chapters, you are what percent of the way through Romans? Okay. <laughs> yeah, if we counted verses, maybe it would be something like that. But as far as chapters go, you are exactly 50% of the way through Romans. And Paul is getting ready to pivot in his conversation in the letter, and he's going to be talking about some new things. And so it's a great time just to pause and to walk through hermeneutics for a few weeks before jumping back in. So that's what this class is doing, okay? And today, it's uh, a lesson from bibliology. Bibliology. That is the study of the Bible. And there are five words that you need when it comes to bibliology that you're going to learn today. Inspiration, sufficiency, inerrancy, hermeneutics, and exegesis. Okay, you're going to learn all five of these words today. We're going to go pretty quickly. If you've got a question as I'm going through, I'm probably going to answer it pretty quickly because I want to get through this whole lesson today so next week we can start that video series. All right? But uh, hopefully having information up on the screen will help you. So let's begin talking about inspiration. When we talk about the Bible and we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, what do we mean? Well, here are some quotes from other Bible teachers, and these are inspirational quotes because they're all about the inspiration of the Bible. First is from John Frame. He says, the Bible being inspired, this means that it is a divine act, creating an identity between a divine word and a human word. Now that is kind of a complex quote. Let's see if we can get something a little simpler here. Charles Ryrie. He says, the inspiration of the Bible is that God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. That's a good quote. That's a good summary. When we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, we're not meaning that the Bible is inspired in the same way that maybe a Maya Angelou poem was inspired. Because you know the culture will use the word that way, like, oh, she's inspired. We mean something much deeper that God superintended human authors so they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. That's pretty good. Here are a few more from John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew's book, Biblical Doctrine. They say, God produced the scriptures by influencing the human author's own thoughts. He produced the scriptures. So humans didn't ultimately produce the scriptures. God produced the scriptures. But he did so by influencing human author's thoughts. Wayne Grudem says, all of the words in the Bible are God's words. Okay, so when we think about the inspiration of the Bible, that's... The real-life application of this, that last quote, when you open the Bible, no matter what word you look at, it's God's Word. All of the words of the Bible are God's words. So, inspiration, to sum all of it up, the inspiration of Scripture is the doctrine of God's intervention into history through the written Word with the view of offering mankind truth by way of human authors. God intervened into history. He didn't just leave us to our own devices. He didn't create us and then walk away. That's what deism teaches, that God created all things and now he's, you know, 
doing one of his hobbies out in the backyard somewhere, not paying attention. We believe that God is involved, and he's not just involved in our lives in mysterious, quote-unquote mysterious ways. He's involved in our lives through, and I'm here I am talking about the Bible. I don't even have one up here with me. He has intervened in our lives through the Holy Bible. These are the words of God. Through human authors, he has offered us truth by intervening into history. Okay? So what's at stake when we think about the inspiration of Scripture? Well, the doctrine of Scripture is absolutely fundamental and essential because it identifies the only true source for all Christian truth. Scripture repeatedly claims to be the Word of God. The prophets appealed to it as the foundation for God's promises and judgments. Christ and his apostles based the whole of Christian doctrine on the Scriptures. And this is again from MacArthur and Mayhew's book, Biblical Doctrine. Scripture is the foundation for all we believe, isn't it? It's the foundation for our whole system of faith. That is what is at stake. And if we start tiptoeing over to the edge and saying, you know, uh, Scripture, maybe not all of Scripture was inspired, because perhaps you've interacted with people who are red-letter Christians. The red letters, Jesus' words, those are inspired. We pay attention to those. But the other stuff, Paul, ooh, Paul is, he's a little abrasive. You've been reading through Romans. Paul's strong, isn't he? And Jesus is just nice. Paul is strong. Jesus is nice. And then don't even get them started on the Old Testament. Well, we can't take any kind of view like that. Because the whole thing falls apart. What did Jesus base his teachings off of? The Old Testament. And all of Scripture fits together. We need all of Scripture. Our goal is to discover what the Bible has to say about itself, not to impose a preconceived definition into our theology. And this is difficult, because who has preconceived notions? If you're breathing, you have preconceived notions. And in the, the video series we're going to go through, he's going to talk about that. There's, just, there's one lesson on, on presuppositions, or pre-understandings, or pre-beliefs, however you want to say that. So what we have to do as we approach the Bible is not come in with this idea that these parts are more inspired than these parts or that this part is more important than that part. We come to the Bible and we want to hear what the Bible has to say about itself. And we adapt to what the Bible teaches us. Scripture speaks of itself as being directly from God and consequently authoritative. Because it's from God, it has authority. And that changes the way that you read. If you believe it comes from God and it has all authority, that changes the way you read. So let's look at a couple passages. Let's look at 2 Timothy together. Turn toward the back of your Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Great memory verses. You need to have these highlighted at least in your Bible and then memorize them. Get them in that head of yours. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The last two verses of the chapter. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So who can read that for us? Who's got it? Joseph, go ahead. Okay. What are the first two words of verse 16? All Scripture. Okay. And it goes on to say that all Scripture, and this is a fancy Greek word, all Scripture is theonoustos. It's all, all that word is theonoustos. It's taking two words and putting them together, which is called a compound word, right? You remember compound words from elementary school, like doghouse, okay? Theonoustos is a compound word. Do you know what two words it's putting together? All Scripture is, what does our English translation say? Inspired. Okay, well, the two words that make our English word inspired, uh, or that we get our translation inspired from, God breathed. It takes the word God, theos, and noustos, the, the second half of the word, is the word for breathed. All scripture is God breathed. So when we talk about the Bible being inspired, we mean that God breathed it out. It's so intimately connected to God that we can say that the word of God is the breath of God. 
Therefore, it has all that authority, all that perfection, all that beauty, all that complexity. That should get us excited about getting into Scripture. Our Maker has given us a direct word, His very breath. Okay, and let's look at 2 Peter also. Turn forward in your Bible, past Hebrews and James, to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Second Timothy gave us the what. What is Scripture? Well, Scripture is God-breathed, all of it. Now, Second Peter is going to tell us how that happened. Second Timothy is what it is. Second Peter is how it happened. So Second Peter 1, 19 through 21. Who can read that for us? Second Peter 1, 19 to 21. Who's got it? Go ahead, Mike. So how did we get Scripture according to that passage? Just look at that passage. How did God's breath get to you today? The Holy Spirit. And what did He do? He, what? Inspired? Well, what's the phrasing that's used in Second Peter? What did He do to the prophets? Carried them along. Don't you like that phrasing? He moved them. He carried them. And it wasn't made out of their own will. Now, is there a personality in Scripture? Yes. Does, is Paul's personality show up in his letters? Yes. Does John's personality show up in his letters? Yes. These are, I mean, if you were studying Greek, you would see that John is like the most basic Greek that you could ever study and learn, where Paul gets a little more confusing, and Luke, who's a physician, gets much more confusing. So we have their personality show up, their skill sets even, in language show up in Scripture. But is the Scripture a result of their own will? No. This right here it tells us it's not of their will, but of the Holy Spirit who carries them along. So all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it happened by the Holy Spirit carrying along the prophets. Now we believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration. There's a picture of... Paul writing his letters. This is extremely accurate, I'm sure. This is exactly what he looked like. Uh, and uh, we have this fancy term up here, verbal plenary. So when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, uh, there are different views that people take, but we believe and teach verbal plenary. That means verbal, words, plenary, all. All the words of the Bible were inspired. When we say we believe in verbal plenary inspiration, what we're saying is we believe that all the words of Scripture have been inspired by God. They were inspired. God maintained holy control over the words in accordance with the writer's individual personalities. So we don't ever want to say, okay, well, the Bible, it was put, put to us, it was given to us by God, so that means what he did was he just got control of these guys, turned them into robots, and they just sat down and wrote everything. That's not what happened. Their personalities are still there. But we also don't want to swing so far the other direction and say, well, look, you read through and everyone's got a different personality. They take a different angle on this, different angle on that. They were just really smart guys and God was helping them along. God was giving them suggestions. And then they wrote their letters. We don't want to say that either. It's in between. That God produced exactly what he wanted to produce. Yet he didn't do it apart from their personalities. And people will say, well, how is that possible? Well, this is the divine sovereignty, human responsibility conundrum that we run into all the time. How is it possible that God got exactly what he wanted, and yet people aren't robots? It's just this beautiful, crazy world we're living in. It's just how it is, okay? We can't find an answer to that uh, that will ultimately satisfy us. We just rest with the facts of what it is. The there are incorrect views of inspiration that carry huge ramifications for how we understand the authority of the Bible. And I won't get into all these. I gave you a couple of ideas, but there's the dictation theory, the conceptual theory, the natural theories of inspiration, and they're all false. The, the dictation one, I guess I will explain. The dictation one is they're robots. The conceptual one is, look, God didn't give them the words, but he gave Paul the idea. So you were just in Romans 8. 
nothing can separate us from the love of love of Christ, right? That whole passage. Well, so God just whispered to Paul, you know, nothing can separate them from Christ's love, encourage them with that, and then he was hands off. And then Paul wrote that, that thought. And then Romans 9, okay, we're going to talk about Israel, Paul. Uh, just let him know I'm in control. Okay, and then he's hands off. Um, that's the conceptual theory. And then there's the uh, natural theory, which really gets away from God's involvement and just says, look, they're just smart guys that came together. And they just wrote smart things. Okay. Well, then, what are we doing here? If that's the case, why are we wasting our time here this morning? Okay, the answer is that God inspired Scripture using the personalities of the authors. John Frame again says, David writes in a very different way from Moses. Luke's writing is very different in style from that of John or of Paul. But as we have seen, all of these very different writers were chosen by God to convey his personal word to the world. That's where we rest. That's where we land. That idea. So that's inspiration. Now let's talk about inerrancy. Word number two. You learned inerrancy. Now word number two, or you learned inspiration. Word number two is inerrancy. Inerrancy is the state of being without error. No error. So as we talk about the Bible and we approach the Bible, and we study the Bible, we come with the understanding that it is without error. This, of course, is very countercultural, not just in the world, not just in America, but in a place where you've got people who teach the Eighth Article of Faith. The Eighth Article of Faith teaches that we believe the Bible is the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly, that there were plain and precious truths removed from the Bible. We don't know what they are uh, specifically, but there's things messed up in the Bible. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches. So when a Mormon goes to read his Bible, he has that idea in his head, doesn't he? That there are errors. He doesn't have inerrancy in mind. He's got errors in mind. And he doesn't know where they all are. So every word you read, you're just thinking this might be an error. And especially if it conflicts with something you already believe, then you say, well, that just is one of the erroneous parts of the Bible. It's a very convenient doctrine, isn't it? But the doctrine of inerrancy then puts us in a position where we say, regardless of what Scripture teaches, I am to submit to it because it has the authority. It's without error. I have error. Scripture doesn't have error. I have error. And I'm asking Scripture to correct me because I'm errant and Scripture is inerrant. There's another word that ties with inerrancy, which is infallibility, and that's an attribute of perfection, meaning incapability to err. So, as we talk about the Bible being inerrant, we're saying, look, there are no errors in it. But the reason that's true is because the Bible is infallible, meaning it can't make a mistake. So, because it's infallible, it can't make a mistake, the result is it's without error. It's inerrant and infallible. For something inerrant to appear errant, there must be deceit or a mistake. So you'll hear people all the time, all kinds of false teachers who will talk about uh, the Bible being wrong on this, the Bible being wrong on that, the scientific community, well, the Bible couldn't be right about this or that, on and on it goes. Well, they're either mistaken or they're being deceitful because the Bible, in fact, it's inerrant. It's without error. Wayne Grudem says the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. It doesn't affirm anything that is contrary to reality. Everything that it, it teaches or affirms is true and right and good. Everything. No 99.9% .9 type of situation. It's 100%. Scripture has God for its source. It's inspired. God is inerrant in all of his ways. Therefore, Scripture is inerrant. If God is the source, if God is without error, what does that say about Scripture? It's without error. It's a product of the God who is without error, the God who is the author of truth. And there's a biblical basis for inerrancy. Let's look at some of these. Psalm 119, I did a sermon on Psalm 119 a few weeks ago. Lots of things to see in Psalm 119. But let's uh, turn there together and look at just a few verses. What is Scripture's testimony of itself? Psalm 119, starting at verse 89. 
This is quite the verse here. Psalm 119.89 Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Settled. God's word is settled. Doesn't need to adapt. God's word doesn't need to change. God's word doesn't need to improve. It's settled. God's word is settled. Okay, let's look down at verse 142. Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is mostly true. Okay, making sure you're paying attention. Your law is truth. Verse 151, just drop down a few verses. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Verse 160. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. You think the psalmist understood the inerrancy of Scripture? Yes. Yes, he did. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your word, Jesus prays. You remember this, his high priestly prayer? Sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. Good deed. Your word is truth. That was Jesus' testimony of the Old Testament, that God's Word is truth, that the Old Testament is true. You can trust it. Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active. What's it sharper than? Yeah, that's right. It pierces the division of soul and spirit, doesn't it? The Word of God is sharp, living, active. The Bible always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. How could the Bible discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart, as Hebrews 4.12 says? How could the Bible do that if it had error? It couldn't. The Bible couldn't do that. It would just be like any other book. But our promise is that the Bible is able to discern all things in your life straighten you out the thoughts of your heart the unspoken intentions of your soul the bible will straighten you out because it's without error it's god's word to us third word sufficiency we talked about inspiration inerrancy and now the third word is sufficiency i'll pause after sufficiency and we can do a few questions probably we're doing better on time than i thought we would be Sufficiency. In these words, you'll see these words go together. Inspiration, inerrancy, and sufficiency. Are we to look elsewhere for words from God or advice that pertains to, I should say matters, not manners, matters of life and godliness? Are we to look elsewhere? No, we're not. Good job. No. We are not to look anywhere else for words from God, right? I hope we're all on the same page there. We have all the words of God that we need. And when it comes to teachings pertaining to matters of life and godliness, are we lacking so that we need to go outside of the Bible to learn more about life and godliness? We're not. Now, of course, there are things like, um, say you're um, an astronomer, and you're into astronomy. Is the Bible going to teach you everything about astronomy? No. Is the Bible going to teach you everything about your job? No, it's not. So there are all sorts of things where you need to learn more, to go get understanding and get wisdom, of course. But when it comes to the fundamentals about who you are, what your purpose is, why you're here, how to get saved, what happens after you die, how to live a godly life, are we lacking when it comes to the Bible in any way? No, we're not. The Bible is completely sufficient. This doctrine has the most ramifications of any of the doctrines we're looking at today. It really does. This affects the way you counsel people. It affects the way you receive counsel. And counseling happens in every conversation, by the way. Anytime there's a conversation occurring where people are talking about their life, getting advice, getting feedback, that's counsel. Even the smallest, tiniest things of life. Wayne Grudem says the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained 
all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. That, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. The first part of that long sentence is very important. At each stage of history, everyone living had a sufficient knowledge from God, a sufficient revelation from God. So David, of course, living at his time, he wrote lots of scripture. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. So he didn't have all the Psalms for his whole life. He didn't have a lot of the prophets. He didn't have Isaiah. He didn't have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, a ton of the minor prophets. And of course, he didn't have the New Testament. But did he have what he needed for life and godliness? He did. God had supplied him with all that he needed for that stage of redemptive history. And so today, do you have all that you need from God? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And notice it says, not just for salvation, not just for trusting him, but for obeying him perfectly. And this is where all those ramifications come up. It's not just a sufficient amount of knowledge or revelation to get saved. It's for the rest of your life living a life for God. The Bible is sufficient in communicating that knowledge to you. It's a big deal. Revisiting 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that Joseph read for us earlier. Let's, let's read it again before I get into this list. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is what? What does it say? All Scripture is... Okay, good, good, good. In the New American Standard, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And look at verse 17. This is what really hits on sufficiency. So that the man of God may be adequate. Yours might say complete. Yours might say perfect. Equipped for every good work. Here, Paul is teaching that the Word of God is sufficient for equipping you for every good work. Sufficient for all the equipping that you need. So this, that means you don't need these things to obey God. You don't need more revelation. Okay? Don't need to go outside to another book that says it's from God. Don't need to go to a guy who says he hears from God. Don't need that. Anybody says you need it, you say heretic, you show them 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you urge them to repent, you move on. At the end of the list, I'll come back here, just one, one second. You don't need more revelation. You don't need church management. You don't need uh, people, and this is, I don't know exactly what I meant when I first typed this a few years ago, but there are a few different things. It could mean uh, you don't need outside consultation to come in to talk to you about your church and how it's to run. Now, those things can be helpful. There's wisdom to be shared, of course. But you don't need outside consultation to come in and say, oh, you guys got to do this, this, and this if you want to take off as a church. You, you got to do this new strategy, this new pragmatic strategy if you want to see massive growth. And there are lots of companies out there like that. The Word of God is sufficient. It's the foundation for building this church. And we also don't need um, micromanagers in the church telling you how to obey God, going beyond Scripture. All the authority that a pastor has is wrapped up in Scripture. If he goes beyond Scripture, what's he doing? You don't need to obey God, secular psychology, or therapy. You don't need that to obey God. Now, can there be helpful things out there? Sure. But do you need them to obey God? No, you don't. And if you say you do, you have a problem with the Word of God. And you need to be corrected by the Word of God. You don't need medicine to obey God. No. I put in parentheses, go to the doctor. I'm not telling you don't go to the doctor, okay? I'm not telling you get rid of all your medicine. I'm not saying that at all. But if you take the view, I need these pills so that I can obey God, you're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. Because obedience to God comes from the equipping of the Word of God and the work that He does in us. So if we start saying we need these things to obey God, we're actually denying the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need those things to obey God. 
Now, are there helpful things? Again, I want to make sure I'm hedging all my statements here, not being like Mr. Crazy, but I, maybe you're saying that anyway. But we, we need to just recognize what we need to obey God, Scripture says, is just Scripture. And we submit to that. You also don't need the right environment to obey God. Get that a lot, too. I just can't serve God here. I can't obey God here. You haven't met my family. I can't obey God with these people. They're always dragging me down. You don't need the right environment to obey God. The Scripture is sufficient. It does help. Again, I'm not not here to say uh, there aren't helpful things out there. But the Scripture is sufficient. It's not lacking. Scripture doesn't stop short and say, okay, I'm going to give you 95% of what you need to obey God, and you've got to go find the other 5% by reaching into all these different places. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture presents itself as sufficient. Okay, Carrie, go ahead. Yeah, sure, totally. I've got a, I've got a podcast. I've written a, I've written a book. Uh, yes. So, um, and I've got a library in there. I just had to buy a new bookcase because I have so many books. And, but our, our mentality as we approach all those things first has to be these things are helpful but not necessary. Scripture is necessary. And a lot of times we live the other way around. Like, well, Scripture is helpful, but it's not necessary. But I need this X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. We have to reverse that. The only thing that's in the necessary column is Scripture when it comes to what we need to obey God. Okay? Um, so, that's our mindset. And then secondly, when it comes to those resources and figuring out if something's actually helpful or harmful, there will be disagreements among Christians on some of those things. Not everything is objective in that realm. There will be one book that I'll say, I got a lot out of that book, and Tyler might say, yikes, are you serious? <laughs> and that's okay, right? Um, to a point. There is a point, though, where a line can be crossed, and it's like, well, this person is objectively teaching something that goes against Scripture, and we need to stay away from that. And, and there's a spectrum to this. It's not usually a clear line that's being crossed, but it's like, well, that person's getting very close. I would just stay away. And so it's when you get the counsel of God's people and then make a decision for yourself. Yeah. Renee, do you have a thought in there? Right. Yes. Yes. And most of the authors, I would imagine, I have some familiarity with, so always feel free to ask me, and if I don't know, I'll do the research. That's part of my job, so I would, I would love to do that. Carrie, then Dean. Yeah, so, so that would be, I bet that would be a case where um, you would perhaps find some disagreement in our own church even, because, okay, Lee Strobel, great guy, loves the Lord, has done all kinds of work to get the gospel out, undeniably. As far as we know, he's lived a, a, good, a, a, a life of integrity. Now, his approach to apologetics, though, I don't agree with. I don't agree with that, with the evidential approach to apologetics, which is what he does. Does God use it to reach people? Yes. Would I ever say, ooh, don't read that, don't give that to somebody? No. So, but it's just, personally, I wouldn't get a lot out of that. So, there you go. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the word teaches there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. If you just have one counselor, that person might be wise, but you're not going to be getting as much out of it as if you had a multitude of counselors. 
because we all kind of bump into each other and something good will come out of it, okay? Okay, uh, let me see how many more slides we got here on sufficiency. Only Scripture can tell you how to live and make decisions. We're going to talk about this in the sermon today. Only Scripture can tell you how to live and make decisions. This is the authority issue. No other source has authority. No other source can bind your conscience. Only Scripture has the power and authority to do that. And here are some passages you can write down. Um, maybe let's turn to one of them. Let's go to Psalm 19. Let's, let's do Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. <clears throat> Yeah, in today's, today's message, I want you to listen, to, listen for this topic that's going to come up, um, how we are not to seek out another master. We've been set free, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, don't go seeking a yoke of slavery. You've been set free in Christ, and so don't go seeking out another master. And in our context today in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be talking about how don't go seeking something else that's going to have authority over you morally. Only God has authority over you through His Word. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Can I get another volunteer to read that? Who's got it? Psalm 19, 7 through 11. Jen, go ahead. Of what other source of information can you say those things? <laughs> not, you can't, not truly, right? You can't say of any book that's been written by any author uh, outside of the Bible. You can't say that about any presentation. You can't say that about anything other than the Word of God. The only authority over your life is God as He has revealed Himself. That's the only authority. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Everything that we need has its root in Scripture. It's tied to Scripture. It comes from Scripture. That's why we have this core value over here on the wall. We study the Bible. Okay, why? Because it is the whole counsel of God. I just wanted to use my laser. The whole counsel of God. John Frame says, Scripture is necessary, comprehensive, and sufficient to deal with the decisions that we must make in our lives. And there's a, usually in this class I read an excerpt from that book, but I won't do that today. Scripture is necessary, comprehensive, and sufficient to deal with the decisions that we must make in our lives. Okay? So, give me a, give me a quick definition, just to in lay people terms. What is inspiration of Scripture? What's inspiration? Who can give me some kind of definition? Joseph, you can. What's the inspiration of Scripture? No, it's that the Word of God that you have in your hand, how did it get to you? There you go. That's it. So what you were talking about is illumination, not inspiration. So illumination is for a different study. But inspiration, that the Word of God that you have in your hand is what percent God breathed? Even Second Chronicles? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Remember that when you get into those Bible reading plans and you hit Second Chronicles, okay? All Scripture, God breathed. Okay, that's inspiration. What's inerrant or inerrancy? What is the inerrancy of Scripture? Okay, the Bible is without error. Everything it teaches or affirms is true. Zero error. Inspired, inerrant, and then sufficient. 
Sufficient meaning. It's necessary. It's comprehensive. Sufficient at that point. It's kind of redundant. Necessary and comprehensive to deal with the decisions that we must make in our lives. So if those things are true, when it comes to hermeneutics, how we interpret the Bible, hopefully that gives you a big view of the Bible and it puts a a weight on you that we must interpret this thing right. Because if we're off on how we interpret this, we're missing out on the very words of God. It's not just some other book where, well, maybe I heard it right, maybe I didn't. We want to hear it right. These are the words of God that are sufficient for causing us to live for him. So before we get into hermeneutics and exegesis, the last two words, and those will go pretty quick. Any thoughts or questions on those three items? Inspiration, inerrancy, sufficiency. Carrie. So anytime someone would call those rules or commands crazy, first thing you say is, by what standard? Why do you, by what standard do you call them crazy? Who are you to say that anything that God says is crazy? <laughs> so that's number one. That's the first thing that uh, hit me as you were presenting that, is <clears throat> I want to hip check that person in the wall a little bit. Um, the, uh, but the other thing is there has to be an understanding of the commands that God gave in the Old Covenant. The word Old Testament means Old Covenant. That's what Old Testament means. And it was the first covenant that God had made with his people. You go back to Exodus 19, Exodus 20. God is entering into covenant with a people he has made for his own pleasure. Now, the terms of that covenant contain the law. There were blessings and cursings tied to that law. And not every command was the same. God would present to them in the law something that was moral, like don't lie. Now, that hasn't gone out of style, right? That hasn't been superseded. That hasn't been replaced. It is the moral law of God that for every person in every age, it's true that lying is wrong and sinful. But for his particular people that he entered into covenant with, whose purpose was to be a light to the nations, he also gave them other rules that would cause them to stand out, like don't mix uh, fabrics in your shirts. That's one that people like to point out. Don't eat shellfish or or pork. That's another one people like to point out. God's doing these things to set them apart from the nations, a people for his own possession, that they would be a strange people in the world and be a testimony to their relationship with God that they would abstain from such things. So there were moral laws, there were uh, ceremonial laws, and because they were an actual nation, they, they, I mean, they weren't just a race of people, they were a nation. They had civil laws about going to court, how you were to conduct your courts uh, and your cases. It, it was case law. If a man is chopping down a tree and his axe head flies off and hits his neighbor in the head and the neighbor dies, what do you do? God explained all that because they needed that as a nation. And actually, our nation based a lot of our court system off of that because there's still wisdom there that applies to us even though we're not Israel. So a person who comes to the Bible with that kind of, uh, you know, they're chirping about that stuff, they don't know, they've never studied any of this, they don't want to study any of that 99% of the time. So, but you, you can take the time and explain that to them and say, look, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. That's what Jesus said. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now, he didn't fulfill the moral law so that now we are people who have no moral compass and we just go live like hedonists and do whatever we want. We still have the moral law of God that we're under, but he fulfilled those ceremonial things that um, were given to Israel in that he was the perfect Israelite. He was the perfect Jew, and those things are all fulfilled in Christ. And we are not a theocratic nation-state like Israel. God hasn't made the church as an actual nation with real estate on a map to replace his first covenant people, Israel. But the church instead is this organism that's all over the world and we are under secular governments, and they may draw wisdom from the Old Testament, but those civil laws aren't for us to apply in the church as though we are now some sort of nation like Israel. And so that can all be explained, but again, 99% of the time, people don't care. They just want to live in their sin and don't have any accountability for it. That's usually what they're doing. (laughs) Other thoughts or questions?
Okay, well, let's, uh, let me give you a little bit of taste of hermeneutics. Uh, again, the next few weeks, we're going to start a video series that's all about this word, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics has traditionally been defined as the art and science of biblical interpretation, and that's a good, that's a good definition. Um, from one of the books that we're actually reading in our men's study, the men's lunch, Roy Zuck, Basic Bible Interpretation, he says hermeneutics is the science, which are the principles, and the art, which is the task, by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined. So you have the Bible written to us, and you've got some stuff that's pretty straightforward, like what that really short verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, that people can memorize real quick, Jesus wept. Well, that's pretty straightforward. It means Jesus, the person who was walking on the face of the earth, he had tears coming from his face, he was sad, he wept. That's pretty straightforward. And then you have some other passages that talk about um, the prince of the power of the air, who has control over all the sons of disobedience. And, okay, now that's a little deeper, isn't it? That's not just a recounting of a historical event. That's teaching you something that's invisible. That's teaching you something that's theological, philosophical. That's a little more difficult. And then you get to the book of Revelation. And you've got a dragon, and you've got stars falling, and you've got uh, these creatures, these four living creatures that are weird-looking shaped, and uh, God's going to do all these things in the future. And Wow, what do you do with that? Well, you have to still seek for the meaning of the biblical text, and you have to have some kind of hermeneutic that you can use to discover that. And uh, that's, that's going to be the focus for the next few weeks. Challenges to understanding the Bible. Now, it is a challenge. We don't want to pretend like, well, you just crack open your Bible and you read it, and then you'll get it. It's not that easy. There are challenges. For instance, there's a time gap. When was the last book of the Bible written? It's the book of Revelation. Do you know when John wrote that, roughly? Yeah, it was around 90 AD. So we're talking, for all intents and purposes here, 2,000 years. 2,000 years since the last book of the Bible was written. The world was a little different 2,000 years ago. You, you talk about how different the world was 50 years ago. How about 2,000 years ago? One year ago, yeah. <clears throat> the space gap. Where were the bulk of the Scriptures written? What region? You can just use broad terms. Yeah, like east of the Mediterranean there, in the Middle East, Israel, Jerusalem, that area. And where are we? We're over here in America that the biblical authors really didn't have any idea of, right? Here we are in a totally different place. When they start talking about going from this city to that city, going to that sea and this river, we have to do work because that's not here. Even though we do have, <laughs> we do have a saltwater lake and a freshwater lake connected by a Jordan River, just like they do, uh, it's different. There's a customs gap. Greet one another with a holy kiss or... We're going to get to here pretty soon, head coverings, 1 Corinthians, head coverings for women. That'll be interesting. How they met for their church services. All that stuff is different, and a lot of customs are different. Language gap. What languages was the Bible written in? Old Testament, New Testament. Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. There's also some Aramaic in the Old Testament. Anybody speak Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic? Right? Okay. So there's a language gap. They weren't writing in English, were they? They were writing in another language. <clears throat> and a, there, there was a writing gap. The way that they went about writing letters then is different from the way we communicate today. You are either firing off texts or emails. And they're writing long letters, making long arguments in a really structured format, in a way that would make sense to the reader. So you think of the epistles of Paul, and when you read through those, you have to have a different mindset than when you're just checking your phone and looking at an email. It's different. And a spiritual gap. What did I mean when I wrote spiritual gap? I don't know if I'll remember that one. Spiritual gap. Spiritual gap. Pretend like that one doesn't exist. Time gap, space gap, <laughs> customs, language, writing. Okay. <clears throat> um, Oh, and I, 
Apparently it wasn't what I meant. It was what Roy Zuck meant. So get his book, Basic Bible Interpretation, and you'll find out exactly what he meant on that. Um, so how do we rightly interpret this book? Well, how do you interpret a love letter? Context is everything. If you, hear, if you see the phrase in a letter, and, and there are people who like to you know, love history and they can dig up old letters or dig up old correspondences or whatever, and you'll see something in the letter like, I hope you're doing better. You see a phrase like that, and now you're starting to put together context, right? Because you're analyzing. You want to know. Well, it means that they haven't seen each other for a while, and the last time that this person knew about that person, apparently that person wasn't doing well, maybe physically or whatever, and you start putting context together. You don't see a phrase like that and you just interpret it however you want. You're seeking to understand the meaning of it. It's been great getting to know you. A phrase like that, there's all kinds of context that you can draw out of that. And see you soon. You can find out the intention of the author. That author has an intention of meeting with that person again. So context is very key, and you look for that in the text. Each book of Scripture was written with purpose to certain people in a specific time, in a specific place. All of that is very key as you approach the book, books of the Bible. You don't just open the book of Jeremiah and say, well, this, whatever I'm reading here just means whatever it means for me today. That is not how you understand the Bible. That's not a good hermeneutic. That's not good biblical interpretation. But you submit yourself not only to what it's teaching you, but you find out what it's teaching you by submitting yourself to the context. Because you have to know what the authors were saying, what they were intending for you to understand. So we believe in a hermeneutic that is literal, historical, grammatical, and consistent. This is what you'll learn in the video series with Todd Friel, too, the hermeneutic series. A literal, historical, grammatical, and consistent hermeneutic. Literal meaning the Bible means what it says, apart from any hidden meanings. We don't ascribe to those Bible codes. Have you seen those, those videos online or books that people have written where you can count the letters of, you know, that are in the Torah and they all come together and they have this hidden message. Or Revelation, there's a, a code break for Revelation. Now we can really understand what it means by taking these numbers and dividing them by this number and times it by the year 2021. And all of a sudden, <gasps> we know Jesus is going to be coming back on June 30th of 2021. It was there all along. How could we miss it? We believe in a literal hermeneutic. No hidden meanings. The Bible was composed in varied cultures at varied times, and this must be taken into account. We want to understand what they meant in their context. Okay? So, again, going back to someone like Jeremiah. Was the prophet Jeremiah writing to you? Not immediately, right? His context was Israel at a very specific time during the Babylonian captivity. All of that is first, and then the ramifications or the application for your life comes later. Don't flip those around and say, what's, what's he saying to me? What's God saying to me in this passage? And you have no idea who the author is or why he wrote. You're never going to know what God's saying because you don't know what the author was writing. Grammatical, meaning the Bible features different figures of speech, and we recognize that, okay? Uh, there are different genres in the Bible, and there are figures of speech. So when it talks about the outstretched arm of God and how God has wings, we understand that both of those are figurative expressions, that we don't start picturing God in our mind, heaven forbid, as some sort of being that has wings and arms, we understand that there are grammatical devices used in the text to illustrate points. And we want to be consistent, meaning that the normal and customary meaning of the text is favored. Scripture is always consistent with itself. So we don't look at something like... Um, oh, this one was pretty wild. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy, Christian Science. Uh, she's the one who founded the Christian Science Movement. I, I believe this was her. Took the name Adam... In Genesis, Adam. Well, when you look at it, you just put a space between his first letter and the rest of the name, a dam. Adam was a dam who prevented, for a while, sin from spreading to all of humanity, and then the dam broke. And then sin spread to all of us. 
Is that what God is teaching you by having the first man named Adam? No. The name Adam means man. Okay? It's, that's all it is. It's a name. That's all. So that's hermeneutics. We want to be literal, historical, grammatical, and consistent and plain. Not looking for any kind of goofy stuff. Just plain, normal meeting and be consistent throughout Scripture. And then finally, we'll end with this, exegesis. Exegesis is a little different from hermeneutics because exegesis is the skillful application of sound hermeneutical principles to the biblical text in the original language with a view to understanding and declaring the intended meaning of the author. This is a definition we had to memorize in my Greek class. We got 10 bonus points on our tests if we wrote this out from memory. Exegesis is basically interpreting Scripture, but you're doing it in the original language. It's what pastors should be doing. It's what sound Bible teachers should be doing. Is, and we have so many tools to do this today where you're getting into the Greek, you're getting into the Hebrew, and you're seeking to pull out the meaning from the original language. Exegesis isn't for everybody in the church. It shouldn't be for everybody in the church. Hermeneutics is for everybody in the church. Okay? But the, especially Bible teachers need to be practicing exegesis. Okay? Um, it would be wonderful if more Christian lay people were able to do that. But unless you're a scholar or a pastor, you can just stick to hermeneutics. You don't have to feel like you need to uh, learn Greek, okay? So that would be fun. It'd be a lot of fun. You could do it. I believe in you. There's a lot of ability in this room. You could do it. But it is a lot of work. So let's uh, conclude with some thoughts. Um, Yeah, we've got two minutes. I'm your neighbor. Tell me how the Bible got from God's mind to us today. Someone take a stab at it. This is going back to that word inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture. What, what happened? Did he just one day create a book? Okay, good. So the one, Wayne wasn't even here for this part of the class, okay? So and he's being bold and saying it. Good. It was through people. Now, for those of you who were here, let's fill it in a little more. Fill it in. Okay. Good. Yes. Very good. So you can go back to, I gave you those passages, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Peter 1. Go back to those and say, look, it says God breathed it. So God was the one who initiated this, right? Truth has always been in the mind of God. God initiated sharing truth to us, and he did that by breathing out Scripture, by appointing Scripture writers and carrying them along by the Holy Spirit, as Mike said. By God's Holy Spirit, he inspired them to write. And you're left with a book that is mostly true, right? 100% true all the time. Is there a reason to entrust a church with the authority to manage God's revelation to man? Do we need a middleman? No, we don't. Do we need an earthly mediator? No, we don't. Now, do we need teachers? Yes. Do we need pastors and deacons in the church? Yes, we do. Yes, this is God's design. But no one is a manager of the Word of God. And most people, most churches that take a position like that believe God's still giving new revelation. And it's through the church. And here we are. We're, we're hearing from God and we're telling you what He says. That's not, that's not what we believe. Who, oh, do you trust the, uh, do you entrust a church with the authority to manage your life? Not the church, that's scripture, that's it. Now, so as far, as far as a human teacher is teaching you the word of God, from the word of God, do you submit? Okay, let me, ref- let me say it again. As far as a human teacher is teaching you from the Word of God, do you submit? Yes. Because you're submitting to what? The Word of God. You're not submitting to the human teacher. But with some sort of mediator that says, actually, you need this church and these men or whatever to tell you what to do because, you know, God's rules are changing all the time and we'll help you stay up to date. No. No, no, no. None of that. Will you work on your hermeneutics? I'll answer that for you. Yes. Uh, your class is coming up. We'll work on you with that, okay? So, yeah, next week, if this was a systematic theology class, we'd be starting Christology. But, no, next week you're starting hermeneutics with Todd Friel, okay? Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you so much for your word, that you've inspired it, that we have your holy word without error, and that it is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. Please equip our minds to study this word rightly, that we would understand what you have for us over the next few weeks. Really sharpen our skills together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.